Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Um, Father, we come to you on this Mother's Day now thanking, and we are thank, thankful for the gift that you have given us in women, in our moms, and in this church. From the very beginning, you've given us life through the line of Eve, and so thank you for, for our mothers. And we do pray today for those who have a hard time on Mother's Day, whether it's that they've lost a mom or had a bad relationship or desperately wish they could experience motherhood. We, we pray for our women who have, who have struggled through the pain and devastation of miscarriage. We pray today that every woman here will feel seen by you and known and loved. We pray for our moms. This has been a really tough year to raise kids. The pressure of isolation and the pandemic has felt crushing, and so we pray that moms would find ways to create space and margin to take a breath and rest and be restored in their spirit. And today we pray that their families would help them and that their church family would help them. Father, we also pray today because when we look around us at this world, we see such evidence of the need for your kingdom to come as we've been studying. We pray today for our Asian American and Pacific Islander brothers and sisters, not just because May is set aside, but because there's been a rash of recent violence, and we pray that you would bring justice that leads to peace. Our hearts are broken as we see what's happening globally, even as we seem to finally be seeing the impact of vaccines and the reducing of the spread of this virus in our own country when we look across to places like India and the devastation this pandemic continues to wield, it's overwhelming. And so we pray for an end to COVID and its spread. We pray for healing. And we also pray that people across this world would hear the warning of their own mortality and turn and find hope and life in Christ. We pray, come Lord Jesus, make all things new. And as we turn to your word together, we pray that you would speak to us, and we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right, well, today we are continuing in our series in the book of Revelation, and so I'm eager to get into this text with you. Um, we turn to Revelation chapter 20 today. We've been in Revelation since January, um, so now a nice, light Mother's Day text. We are going to study a thousand years in the, in the doom of Satan. Um, and those of you, by the way, I just want to mention, as, we are come, as people are coming back and, and, and as, as we're navigating things, you may have seen some COVID updates from our church that went out this past week. We'll continue to try to keep you updated. Um, one of the things that we haven't figured out yet that we're working toward, and hopefully we'll have more answers in June, is childcare. But those of you who have kids in the room this morning, don't worry about them making noise. That's what they do if they're breathing. Um, and I'm glad to have you here, so, so please don't, don't worry about it. All right, now, we are finally seeing in these chapters that we're in Revelation the, a portrait of the end of all things, the fall of the kingdoms of this world as perfect justice comes, and the return of Jesus to throw down uh, the Antichrist and false prophet, anti-God authority and anti-God ideology, and today we see the judgment of Satan. 
which might be striking if you're not a Christian in particular, that, that you might wonder, like, do you really believe in Satan? Like, that, that, that's an actual individual, a being, a spiritual being, that, that there's really a devil trying to tempt us and trying to do harm to us. And, and is that something you really believe, or isn't that just, like, imagery and mythology? And, and to that, Christians, if we're holding tight to Scripture, ought to say, yes, we do believe in, that Satan exists. More than that, we believe that there are spiritual forces of evil that are underneath and undergird all the violence and hate and oppression that we see. But Satan isn't just a little devil on our shoulder, like we've got Satan on one side and an angel on the, on the other, like, like cartoons will portray. No, Satan is, is not just a red-costumed creature with horns and a pointy tail. Satan can only twist and deceive and steal and kill and destroy and often in our cultural context, Satan can accomplish that by letting us live our lives with little concern for who God is or what sin is or whether we need a savior. In the words of Kaiser Soze in Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. And so, when we come together on Sundays, it's a unique thing for our church. That, as C.S. Lewis said, we are in enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. And so today in our passage, we see Satan's demise. We see his final judgment. We see the victory of Christ again. And so let's look together at Revelation chapter 20. This is what we read. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him in the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer." until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea." And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, this is the first six verses of Revelation 20 are likely the most hotly debated and overwritten about section of this entire, entire book of the Bible. 
That's saying something because we've seen through this that there's powerful imagery in Revelation that's, uh, that can be challenging to distinguish and discern, but we've also seen that a lot of the imagery is drawn heavily from other places in Scripture, particularly the, the Old Testament and apocalyptic literature there as we get into Daniel and Ezekiel and some of the things that Christ had taught. And so, but, but here, there's, there's this idea of the millennium that people divide over. And it becomes a divisive issue, and it has divided whole denominations in the past. In fact, in our own denomination, until 2019, we had a stand on millennial views. And it has, in, in 2019, that word was removed, and we removed it from a millennial view to say that Christ's return would be glorious. And I, I applauded the change. Not because I think it's, it's impossible to come to a perspective, but because I don't think that that is something that should divide us, especially since none of us know what's really going to happen until we get there. And so as we look at this, I've warned you, I warned you early on in, this, in our series in Revelation to be a little bit leery of people that pull out charts and show you with too much specificity how to interpret this book. And I'm sorry for what you're about to sit through. <laughs> and so um, if you're new today, we are going to, and even if you're not, Church, we are going to go very academic and hopefully only for about 10 minutes or so, and I'm going to try to give you a, a, a sense of the landscape on people's perspective on the millennial kingdom of Christ that we just read about and how it's interpreted, and I'm going to do it very quickly, and you may feel a lot of more questions than answers as I get through that, and then I'll get to the actual sermon. And so um, stick with me through this. Some of you are ready to nerd out about this. If that's you, come back after the 5.30 and join me for the Q&A, and we can talk much more about it. All right, so there are four major perspectives on what this thousand years means. The, there, the first one is called historic premillennialism. Um, you know what? I'm going to send out the slide that has all four of these on it this week, and so don't scramble too much if you're trying to take notes. Historic premillennialism is the idea that we are living in the last days and Christ will return and usher in a definitive rule and reign for his kingdom on earth before judgment. It sees the thousand years as a symbolic number, so it's not necessarily literalistically a thousand years, but that there will come a time when we interpret this passage at face value that Christ will return and bind Satan for, for a, a definitive reign on earth and then Satan will be released before we go to final judgment and eternity. Another tweak of this is what is called dispensational premillennialism. And this is, if you've read the books Left Behind or seen the scary movie um, A Thief in the Night um, when you're, that was made in the 70s, this is what's being represented, that we are now in the church age that's distinct from the old covenant age and that there will be a rapture and then after the rapture where God's people are removed from earth, there will be seven years of tribulation and then Christ will return to earth for a thousand years and reign on a throne in Jerusalem in a Davidic kingdom, a restoration of Israel for a thousand years. And then there will come final judgment and new heaven and new earth. A third perspective is post-millennialism. See, the names aren't as confusing. It's long. The word is long, but, I mean, and it, but it, millennial just means thousand. And so pre means that Christ returns before. Post means he returns after. Okay, so it's not as confusing as it looks. Postmillennialism is, is the most optimistic perspective on our current age. It's saying that the church age will slowly make the world more and more Christian 
And as that happens, the, the church will usher in the millennial kingdom, and it, there's a focus on the expansion of the gospel and the increase of Christianity in, across the world, and that then Christ will return for final judgment and usher in the new heavens and new earth. And then the final, fourth perspective is called amillennialism. Sometimes people call this a spiritualized perspective. Others would call this an inaugurated millennium. But this is to say that, that the millennium, the thousand-year kingdom, is current. It is now that Christ has bound Satan in that the, and, and given new life in the church and so that Satan can't damage the church itself. And so the expansion of the church continues, and this is language that is a symbol for the, the life that we are living now, and that when Christ returns, it will be for final judgment, and then the new heaven and new earth. The, you'll notice that what everybody shares in this is that this ends with final judgment and the new heavens and new earth. These are the four major perspectives. And theologically, though, this doesn't necessarily define it. Theologically, there are three major streams that, we, that people fall into. Now, within this, understand that I am trying to simplify 2,000 years of discussion on this issue, and there are as many branches on views on the millennium as there are denominations in this world. So um, understand that. I'm trying to give you just the broad overview. So within these, there's three major streams, theologically, as I see it and as I, as I can figure out. Postmillennialism was founded, uh, was, was prominent, it wasn't founded in the U.S., but it was prominent in the founding of the United States. It really came to its rise, um, it, it existed before, but it came to its rise during the Industrial Revolution when there was tremendous optimism about humanity. And, and as the United States was founded, though, this nation was, was set up to be, and you may, may recognize this language from, our, from your American history classes, it was supposed to be a city on a hill, it was a place to recapture religious freedom that would usher in the messianic age here in America. And so there was some resurgence, there's some resurgence in some sectors, but this isn't as prevalent of the three major theological perspectives. The First and Second World Wars really made people question whether humanity was going to become more Christian, but this is the primary perspective of, of very politically progressive Christians. Because the perspective is that we are responsible in post-millennial kingdom in an eschatology to bring the fullness of God's kingdom now and here, and that that is the primary calling of the church. It's that it's applied to often issues of injustice and oppression and systemic issues. And so often, the, the politically progressive side of Christianity will embrace post-millennialism whether they know it or not. The other, a second theological stream within this, and you can leave those four up in the room, Katrine, that's fine um, for now, is dispensationalism, which is what you see with the most complicated chart up there. Dispensationalism is a belief that the kingdom is only future, and so different than postmillennialism, opposite of postmillennialism, right? That postmillennialism says the kingdom is now more than future. Dispensationalists say, no, it's future, not now. And so this pre-mill, pre-tribulational rapture view, and, and this rose to prominence, especially in the U.S. It didn't really exist until the mid-19th century or the mid-1800s. Its heyday really kicked in, though, in the mid-20th century in, because in the mid-20th century, something happened in 1948. Does anybody know what happened in 1948? Somebody said Israel. Israel became a nation state again. And so when that happened, people lost their minds and said, this is it. 
Jesus is coming back, the temple's gonna be restored, and, and so dispensationalism kicked in. And so that's when you got charts like this one from Henry Ironsides, who was the pastor at Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. Perfectly clear. <laughs> now, let, we can go back to the other ones. This is going to give me a headache. <laughs> All right. Dispensationalism, at its core, dispensationalism holds a discontinuity approach. And so there is a hard-line distinction between Israel and the church. That's what you need to understand. So post-millennialism is bringing the kingdom now. Dispensationalism says, no, Israel and the church are totally distinct, and the promises to Israel have not yet been fulfilled. And so the millennial kingdom, when Christ returns, is the time when all of the promises to Israel about land and the Davidic king and all the things that Jesus didn't fulfill in this perspective in his first coming will finally be fulfilled. And so in classic dispensationalism, though I don't know anybody who holds this, in this at this point, actually believed in different eternities for Israel and the church, that Israel inherited the new earth while the church inherited the new heaven. Newer developments, though, they call progressive dispensationalism that incorporates biblical covenants, um, but it still holds to, dispensationalism, the key factor is that it holds to a very Jewish restoration in ethnic Israel is brought to prominence in the millennial kingdom. And so that's dispensational theology. The third theological stream is called covenant theology. And I'm, I'm almost done. Covenant theology is called an inaugurated eschatology. And so covenant theology is a continuity approach. And instead of saying that Israel and the church are totally distinct, covenant theology says, no, there's a progression of biblical covenants that define the people of God. That all of the promises of God made to Israel were fulfilled in Christ and more greatly than what they were imagined to be. And that we are not waiting for the fulfillment of those things because Christ now reigns and rules over all things. But we are, what we are waiting for is for the consummation of the kingdom that has been inaugurated, the fullness of the kingdom that was started in his first coming. And so within this, it's, it's an emphasis that the promises of God were fulfilled in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, and the people of God were redefined in his life and ministry and in the church. If you've been in our series on this, you have heard preached a covenantal perspective. And within that, there are two ways covenant theologians see our passage today. Amillennialism is the most prominent among covenant theologians, seeing this is, as we've seen, so much of the language of, of Revelation is apocalyptic and symbolic. And so the belief in amillennialism, again, is that Satan has been bound in the resurrection of Jesus, and the first resurrection is coming to Christ in salvation, being made alive, and the last days between Christ's resurrection and er, between his ascension and return are the thousand years, and when he returns, he will move to judgment in the new heavens and new earth. That first one on our chart, historic premillennialism, is also within the covenant theology stream. And it's called historic because it's the most represented through church history and exists, has existed in some form from all, through all of church history. And so it recognizes the symbolic and apocalyptic language of Revelation but, and believes that Christ has fulfilled all of the promises of God and still maintains that there will be a definitive return of Jesus to reign on this earth visibly. The thousand years is symbolic to mean definitive and there will be a final judgment, but the millennium is an inaugurated kingdom present now and consummated in the future. So that's kind of the landscape. I hope that makes some sense. 
Because the way that we, the theological streams change the way that we read not just Revelation, but the Old Testament and the New Testament drastically. It's a big question. And, and so within those streams, I feel like I should put my cards on the table for you and tell you where I land, though I want you also to know that for our church, we talk about open and closed-hand issues, and this is an open-hand issue. It's a secondary issue for us. So if, if you hear where I land and you're like, ah, I'm not so sure, that's okay. I'm not, that's not going to change much for us. Now, within these, I am convinced of the covenantal approach. I, and so within that, I, I really don't care as much about whether it ends up being historic pre-mill or amill. If we get to the end and Christ returns and goes straight to final judgment and, it's, and there's no millennial kingdom on earth, I'm not gonna say, you know, Jesus, did you read Revelation 20? <laughs> and on the other hand, if Jesus returns and sets up a kingdom on earth to definitively rule here before final judgment, I'm not gonna say, uh, Jesus, that's not really how I took Revelation 20. And so whatever it ends up being, um, I, I've had friends who call themselves pan-millennials saying that it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> so, um, but we don't need to be unthoughtful about this. So briefly, there are some things that keep me barely by a hair's breadth in the historic premillennial camp. And here's what it is. And again, this is going to be, I'm just going to go quickly because I want to get to what is the actual sermon from our text today. Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 24 are difficult passages for amillennials to deal with. Because Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 24 seem to indicate a period of Christ's perfect, of, of the Messiah's perfect reign, of God's presence with his people, and that still includes men living to old age, but there's still death. Eternity, death is no more. So there's something to deal with in the Old Testament prophets on, on birth and death existing while, while the Messiah is reigning. I also think, personally, it's very hard for me to look around right now at our world and believe that Satan has been bound from deceiving the nations. The nations seemed very deceived by me, by, by Satan, not by me. <laughs> I, I, don't, I hope not. Um, they, to me, it seems like he is still very active. And this last chapter to me, and this last section, seems to read a little bit more chronologically than other sections of the book that I've preached to you, that for instance, the seven seals and trumpets and bowls are different facets of the same events. Amillennials read this as different facets of the final battle that we covered last week, and that is very possible. But it feels different to me when we hear about the first resurrection, and then there's one that follows for the rest of humanity. It's different to me when Satan is thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet already were. And so there's something there that I can't get past. The biggest problem or question that faces historic premillennialism is the question of if all the promises of God have already been fulfilled in Christ, then why have a millennial kingdom? Why is, a, why is Christ returning to earth to reign necessary at all? And that's the hardest question facing the camp that I marginally fall into. And the answer I have is, I don't know. <laughs> it's not to fulfill un unfulfilled promises, but it seems to me in the text that it will happen, and, and I'm sure that God has reasons for it if it does happen. I think that one of the possible reasons is that what we've seen in Revelation, that, that in spite of all of the opportunities, all of the warnings through, through what we saw in the Four Horsemen, through human conquest and violence and inequality and plague, through all of the spiritual pain and hardship people go to, all of the wake-up calls gives us that people still will not repent. And so there could be something, if Christ comes to have a definitive reign here, to be able to show 
that all human excuses are removed. That even with Satan bound and unable to deceive, even with anti-God authority and ideology removed as the beast and false prophet are gone, even with Christ physically reigning and ruling in majesty visibly on earth, that still people from the four corners of the earth will refuse to bend the knee and worship him as king and still will rebel against him in the end. And so if the millennial kingdom has any, anything to it, then it may show that we are without excuse and the depravity of the human heart is extraordinary. extraordinary. So that sets us up for the actual sermon today. What does Revelation 20 mean for us? And I don't think that's necessarily dependent on millennial views. So last week we saw the return of the king. Today we see living under the reign of Christ. And so three observations today on what it looks like to live under the reign of Christ in the time that we have left. First, Jesus rules and reigns over all things. Don't forget that in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we already saw this, that the vision John has of God's throne is not future. The vision John has of God's throne is current. It was an encouragement to to the seven churches in Asia Minor in probably 90 A.D., and so 2,000 years ago, it was true that Christ reigned on the throne. It is certainly true today. He, is, he reigns and rules over all things. He is sovereign over all things now. And so that's difficult for us to reconcile, right? That, that Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he said, some of you will not fall asleep before you have seen the kingdom. But then when he talked about his return, he said, in Matthew 24, concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son but the Father only. And so how do we reconcile that? That Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. (laughs) I was in youth ministry, sorry. There was a high school senior one time that was very zealous and his first tattoo ever was on his hand and he had in old English, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he thought it was hilarious. And I thought he is living with that the rest of his life. (laughs) You guys see me normally, you know I'm not afraid of tattoos, but it was just one that I was like, ah. So how do we deal with Dave? (laughs) Declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand every time he goes out of his house. And Christ making that statement, and then look at the world around us. How do we understand the reign of Jesus in in our lives and in our world now, and then, and then see what Scripture claims. And however we take Revelation 20 itself, and it's, it's tied to this millennial kingdom, the passage that, that, that and what follows shows, after shows that the kingdom of God was inaugurated at his first coming. It's consummated at his second coming. And so remember, we saw the wedding imagery in chapter 19, that there's a wedding feast of the Lamb that God's people are brought into. And so, so really, I think when we think about what inaugurated eschatology is, that the kingdom began and will be consummated, the imagery, it helps us to even think about a wedding. That this is in a, what an engagement is, a betrothal. That you're committed to a person. You have a sign, usually a ring that's given to the, to the bride-to-be as a sign of commitment, that you are committed to this relationship together, and yet your marriage is not fully consummated until the wedding day and the wedding night. And, and th- so this imagery, as we talk about Christ and his bride, the church, this wedding imagery is rich, and so that's what I think when we think about the inaugurated kingdom and try to make sense of it, that's one grid that we can understand, and that is the biblical imagery that the betrothal happened at Christ's first coming and the wedding feast comes at his return. 
And so um, the kingdom of God will, is secure in, its com- in coming in its fullness. Christ rules and reigns and will do so visibly and tangibly soon. The second observation today is that Satan has been defeated and he will be destroyed. The biblical witness is clear. Satan is real. Evil is real. And we know that evil is real. Even, even if, if you're here or tuning in with us and you're an atheist, there are points that we see the violence of humanity against other human beings and we are left without any other category than to say this is evil. It is an evil act. At some point, we see what happens in the world around us and we can recognize that there is something truly wicked. And, and, but it's not... I think even Christians get confused by this because the way that we think of evil often is, is at its core dualistic. It's, and that is, the biblical view is close to that, but it's not truly dualistic. And so we're more, uh, more impacted by philosophical dualism than we even realize. And so think about this. When we think about good and evil, how do we think about it? We think about, about yin and yang. We talk about light and dark. That we talk about, you know, Star Wars, the Force be with you. And that, that you're never quite sure that there's this balance in the universe and, and, and that evil cannot, you know, that, that, that there are equal forces working together and you're never quite sure, but, but you hope that the light wins in the end. But evil can't exist apart from good. That, that, that the only reality of evil is that it twists and distorts that which is good. And so the biblical presentation of wickedness is not that it is equal with what is good. Satan and God are not equals. Satan's a counterfeit and a liar. And he does not measure up to the power of God. He is a created being. He is not equal to God. That we saw this, that Satan is, is in Revelation 12 and, and following, there's this, this attempt to, to create an, an, an unholy trinity as Satan, the great dragon, equips the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist and the false prophet, and the three of them reigning in, in, over the hearts of men in this earth that are just distorting God's goodness and beauty and, and keeping people to their own destruction. But, but we need to hear this, that the Antichrist is not equal to Christ. That, that the false prophet is not equal to the Holy Spirit. That, that, and, and so we need to hear this because Satan is nothing more than a fallen angel. As Jesus said, I saw him fall from, lightning, from heaven like lightning. And so, so we've seen this in Revelation 12, that yes, he is terrifying and Satan is powerful, that he is pictured as a red dragon, an ancient serpent, that, that he is furious and filled with rage and all he wants to do is destroy God's people and he does it by propping up anti-God authority, anti-God ideology in this world. But the message of Revelation is that he can't win in the end. That evil will not win in the end. And do you notice who bound Satan in Revelation 20, verse 1? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, the abyss, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him in the pit. It doesn't even take Jesus stepping in to take him down. 
Jesus gives the word and an angel responds and one of Satan's equals, another angelic being, is the one who, who binds him in the end. So notice that. And Satan's biggest move in verse 7, when he's released after the thousand years, what does he do immediately? In verse 8, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And so this is what Satan does, is he deceives people, but what is his end? Well, it goes on to say that he is defeated, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Now, we saw last week with the return of Jesus that he's pictured on a white horse with a sword from his mouth, but then if, if you remember, Jesus' followers, his people, were clothed in white linen from the, for the wedding feast. And remember, we saw this, that our, we don't even have a place in this battle. It's not us that have to fight against Satan directly. Jesus ends it with a word. And just as, as all things were spoken into being at creation, all judgment comes with God's word being brought to bear. And so Satan is defeated. He was defeated at the cross. He was defeated in the resurrection of Jesus. Christ is the one who rules and reigns after he ascended to the throne in heaven. And Satan will be destroyed in the end in time. And that leads us to the third observation today. That living under the reign of Christ, we know that Jesus rules and reigns over all things, that Satan has been defeated and will be destroyed, and Jesus gives us resurrected life. You see this right in the center of this text. And they came to life with Christ and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, in verse 5, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. See, the, the second death, biblically, is first death is physical death that we experience now, but, but we are eternal beings. Our souls will go on. The second death is, is being removed from God's blessing and covenant love in the end. As, and and being, we'll see next week, we finally see final judgment next week, and, and we will see that, that final judgment, that we are either written in the book of life or we join Satan and the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire, that that is the second death. But the hope we have in this passage, there's a blessing in the middle of all this, and so don't lose that. Don't get so caught up in trying to figure out, like, who is Gog and Magog? That's biblical language from Ezekiel chapters 37 and 38 to say that humanity is gathered together, the nations are gathered together, deceived by Satan in the end. But don't get caught up so much in some of those aspects that you lose the fact that in the middle of this text there's a blessing that those who follow Jesus, those who are in Christ, have the promise that Satan cannot touch us. That you've been marked on, on your forehead with the mark of Christ himself, and you cannot be touched by the mark of the beast. That your alliance and allegiance is not to the kingdoms of this world. They're going to they're gonna smolder in wreckage as Babylon is destroyed, but your allegiance and alliance is to Christ's kingdom in the end, and that shape reshapes everything that we do and how we live now. And so, so do, do you, here's, here's the question, real question in this to me as we read this passage today and hear the reality of Satan on display and his, and his deception of the nations and hear the glory of Christ's coming kingdom on display. The question that comes to us is, is are you going to stand in with Christ or do you plan to face all of this on your own? I don't want to face the great red dragon in his fury on my own. Praise God that Jesus did that for us. 
I don't want to stand before God's judgment on my own. We'll get to that next week in the great white throne. So I don't, I'm not going to dip too much into that today, but the witness of all of Scripture is clear. Redemption Hill, if, you, if you've been part of our church through 2020, which I know most of us weren't here in person, but we walked through Romans, and how much of Romans has that courtroom imagery of judgment? We talked about justification or being declared righteous in God's court by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. That's our only hope. The witness of Scripture is clear that if we stand in the presence of God's holiness on the basis of our own works in righteousness, we will be destroyed. And so, but look who reigns in the end. It's with Christ. It's, it's those who suffered for his sake, who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, who had not worshipped the beast, who hadn't taken the mark, who didn't bow to the power structures of our world, that didn't embrace the anti-God ideology of this world, and that death has no, no power over those whom Jesus has raised. This is what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And I love that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us the answer. Well, the sting of death is sin. Why is death scary to us? Because of our own sin and rebellion, uh, rebellion against God. And the power of sin is in the law. It's that we cannot live up to the measure of God's holiness. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God that victory is sealed and secured. That's the message of Revelation 20. And it goes on, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So church, this is what we see today, that Jesus rules and reigns over all things, that Satan has been defeated and will be destroyed, and that Jesus gives us resurrection life. And that gives us the hope that the work we do now in our lives isn't empty, Everything we do now, everything in our lives that is contributing toward eternity. And so if we are in Christ, we, it, there's a guarantee that he is renewing and restoring all things to his glory. And so our work isn't empty. It's part of his restoration and renewal. As long as it's for his glory rather than ours. As long as it joins God in his good work of, of going back to, go back to the creation mandates of forming what is shapeless, of filling what is empty, of, of bringing order from chaos and cultivating this place for the good of our city. And we've got nothing to be afraid of when it comes to Satan. That, yeah, he's a great dragon. Yes, he's angry. Do you remember the imagery of Revelation 12? That he poured out a flood of deceit and lies toward the woman who is God's people, Christ's bride, the church. And what happened? God hid her in the wilderness and the ground opened up and swallowed up the flood from the dragon's mouth. No, you can't defeat Satan on your own. But we're promised that the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. We're promised that if you resist him, he's got to run and turn tail and flee. So we have nothing to be afraid of. The worst that can happen is that he kills us. And then Jesus will raise us up. And so, that means that the things we do aren't empty. That means your love for your kids is not empty. Your, your hard work that goes unnoticed by your boss is not empty. Bearing with your spouse when they're having a tough week and acting like a jerk, it's not empty. Being the roommate who caves in and does the dishes, it's not empty. 
being the friend who listens well or and the friend who pushes back is not empty. Being honest when it hurts isn't empty. Giving your time and talent and money to something bigger than self-indulgence or self-care. Investing into God's kingdom, it's not empty. It's, it's storing treasure in heaven. Resisting temptation when you know that no one else will know or see it is not empty. God sees you. Admitting when you're wrong and confessing your sin isn't empty. But here's the thing. Here's the beauty of the gospel, that, that all those things can feel freeing, and it's good to know that, that our work is not empty, but there is even the possibility that as, even as I was thinking through some of these things in this list today, I was starting to feel crushed by them because I was starting to ask, like, gosh, if I love my spouse well enough this week, if I, have I caved in and done the dishes enough? Have I been the good friend? Have I, have I loved my kids well enough? Have I given myself fully enough to God's work? And have I resisted temptation perfectly? No, I haven't. You won't be perfect in this. You're not going to perfectly love your kids or do work that goes unnoticed by your boss or bear with your spouse or be the good roommate or be the good friend or give yourself to God's work or be honest when it hurts or resist temptation or, or, or you're not going to perfectly admit when you've done wrong and sometimes you'll get defensive. But Jesus died so that you can live. He died to raise you to life so that you will conquer death. And we get to join him if we are his people. And that is the hope that fuels us and keeps us going and frees us to invest ourselves wholly in the world that he's put us into. And this is the beauty of Revelation. And we have the clear promise that Satan's doom is sealed and we're not even in the fight in, at the end. Do you see that too? We don't do anything. The nations deceived by Satan gather around the encampment of God's people, and what happens? Like I said this last week, like I want to be Braveheart in this scenario. I want to be the one that's like riding with Jesus and has a sword and is ready to go to battle, and the nations are here, let's go. But what happens in the end? We camp, and fire comes down from heaven to destroy the enemies of God. This isn't our fight. Because Christ has already won the victory. And he will take care of it all. We get to be with him in glory. So here's the power of this text on Mother's Day. You didn't think I could make a tie, did you? <laughs> well, we have six minutes. <laughs> God created human beings in his own image. It says in Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone in chapter 2, and so he made a helper for Adam. The word helper there isn't, isn't showing some kind of strata or inequality. The word helper is most often in the, in the Old Testament referring to God, that God is our helper. So he brought the woman to the man, and he said this, and the man cried out in poetry, which most of you women probably haven't experienced, that when a man first sees you, he starts singing. But he said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so this is the foundation for marriage, that man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And they were naked and they were not ashamed. And God had given one instruction to the man that he then was, was the one to, to relay to his wife, and they fell away from God's one rule of just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You weren't, they weren't created with the capacity to understand evil. That's why we still get thrown off when things go wrong. We don't have the capacity to deal with the brokenness of this world. Their eyes were opened after rebelling against God, and they realized they were naked, so they tried to cover themselves. And God came to them and said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree I commanded you not to eat from? 
And the woman blamed God. I mean, the man blamed God first. He said, hey, the woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And the Lord said to the woman, what is it you've done? And the woman said, the serpent, he deceived me and I ate. And so they were unwilling to confess before God that they had sinned. But what did God do in the midst of all of that? Well, what follows is often called the curse. But in Genesis 3, the man and the woman are never cursed. The only curse that's given is toward the serpent and toward the ground itself. And he said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And he goes on to say in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is saying that, that Satan would be pursuing the offspring of the woman for the rest of human history to try to destroy them. And he would get some strikes in. He would do some damage to the heel of the woman's offspring. But in the end, it was going to be one that came from the seed of the woman, that God was going to redeem humanity through humanity. And Jesus is the seed of the woman. He is the perfect one that came, the son of Eve, to come and make all things right. He's the one that comes. And what we read in Revelation 20 is that he crushed and he will crush the head of Satan. That his doom is secure. He has redeemed us in his life and death and resurrection and reigns with us in his ascension and will come and finish the job on his return. And so this is the glory of what God has given us in the gift of life and, and, and what motherhood has meant is it has led to the redemption of all of humanity. Praise God for that. And so we read this passage and as we have this series, the cry we're left with is, come Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, this is our prayer today that we look around us and it seems like Satan is still deceiving the nations. And people have turned and will not turn to Christ. There's death and warfare and violence around us. There's the deception of our own hearts that we have to deal with. And so I pray today that you would help us. Would you expose in us any lies that exist and, and root those out by your spirit? Would you turn our hearts to Jesus and would you help us to rest and trust that he is the one that gives us hope? It's not what we've accomplished. It's not what we've experienced. It's not, it's not the things that we do or don't do, but it's in Christ that we have hope. For those who are, are, are here that aren't followers of Jesus, I pray that, that you would open their hearts to be able to see his beauty and majesty and long to be a part of his glory. And those of us who are, I pray that you would free us to live in light of our identity and in light of the defeat of Satan and not to be afraid of him anymore because the victory is won. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.